Good morning for the second time. I have to say that twice. So exciting news. I had a breakthrough in slide making. And it's going to benefit you. And they're not going to be blurry anymore. Um, between Joe and Jonathan, they were like, hey, you can do this with a PDF and not make your slides blurry. And I was like, thank you. And figured it out. So last week, let's do a little review. Last week, we talked about a lot. A lot of heavy informational stuff. We talked about biblical election, the concept of God choosing one out of the many and using the one to restore his blessing to the many. Remember, he blessed Adam and Eve, and they forfeited that blessing, and then he chose the family of Abraham on down all the way to Jesus, the one out of the many to restore the blessing back to the many, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He restored the blessing back to the many. And we talked about uh, being united in Messiah, how there's no longer any division between any ethnic groups, um, Jew and Gentile, they are one in Messiah. And by virtue of Jesus being the elect one, the chosen one of God, when we come into Messiah by grace through faith, then we also become elect ones because of what he has done. That's our basic gist of what we went through last week. So this week we're going to stay, we're still going to be in Paul's poem um, in verses 3 through 14. Just a couple other concepts to cover in this in movement too, before next week we go on to Paul's prayer, which starts in verse 15 and goes through verse 23, which we'll do a little prepping for that at the end of this sermon. Today, two things we're going to talk about and focus on. We're going to focus on this section of scripture right here in verse 7, where it says that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about redemption and trace that through the whole biblical story because it's an important theme that didn't just start here. And then we're going to talk about abundant wisdom and understanding that Messiah has made available to us when we're in him. Those will be the two concepts we elaborate on today. We'll start with, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So like I said, God has been in the business of redemption for a really long time. By the time that you have read your Bible and you've made it all the way to Ephesians, you'll recognize that redemption is not a new concept when you make it to Ephesians. He's been doing this a long time, and this theme starts in a very significant and important story in the book of Exodus. The Exodus of Israel from Egyptian slavery um, actually parallels the exodus that we go through when we pass through salvation, when we come into God's kingdom. There's a parallel here. There was a type established in the exodus of Israel that's very important to the theme of redemption. Here is a chart from my uh, class's Bible project notes that just lists some important scriptures as we trace this idea of redemption. In Exodus 6-6, right here, um, God says this. He says, I, Yahweh, Yahweh is God's personal name. So anytime you hear me or someone else say Yahweh, we're talking about God. God is a title. Yahweh is his name. I, Yahweh, will bring y'all out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver y'all from their slavery, and I will redeem y'all with an outstretched arm. Remember, too, y'all is just emphasizing that he's talking to a corporate group of people. He's not just saying, I will deliver you, Tabitha. He will deliver her, and he has, but he's, gonna, he's talking to a corporate group. So he says this to them 
before the Exodus takes place. And this is exactly what he does. He says, I am going to do this. I'm going to redeem you. I am going to bring you out by my power. It's as good as done. He tells them this. He's going to do it. He's faithful and he's going to carry through. This is exactly what he does. So Israel comes out from Egypt and they're camped. Um, and they realize that the Egyptians are pursuing them. And all of the people just go off on Moses. And they're like, why did you even bring us out here? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Now we're just going to die here. Why couldn't we just die in Egypt? And Moses encourages them. He tells them, hey, the Lord is going to be faithful. Trust Yahweh. He's going to deliver us. And it doesn't say specifically in the story what Moses said to God, but it does say what God said to Moses. He says to Moses, quit crying to me. Tell the Israelites to move on. And then he tells them to raise up his staff over the Red Sea and the waters part, and they're able to cross through on the dry ground. There's some really cool key details from this story that really line up to the new exodus, the the, uh, exodus of salvation through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins. So in the story... It says that the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud was leading Israel as they were going through the water. They were, the angel of the Lord was leading them. And then at a certain point, he circles around. So he goes from being in front of them and leading them. He circles all the way around and he goes behind them. And he stands between Israel as they're going through the water and her enemies, the Egyptians. He he goes between them. So the Lord himself is their rear guard throughout the night as they're crossing over. And he does this amazing miracle. On one side, while Israel is crossing through, they have light. But on the Egyptian side, it's thick darkness. So it makes it very difficult for the Egyptians to pursue um, Israel and to to advance through that darkness. And uh, this is such a cool word similarity to another passage. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah is describing the deliverance of Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem had been captured by enemies and the people had been exiled. And in this particular passage, Isaiah says, "Um, don't be afraid. The Lord will go before you and God himself will be your rear guard. And that is itself another story about redemption and exodus. So that similar wording about God going before his people and also being their rear guard, encompassing them as he brings redemption and delivers them is part of this continuing theme. Another important thing that God says about this exodus, he says, he's going to gain glory through the defeat of Israel's enemies. He's going to do it so much so that even her enemies will know that he is God. He says this before he even walks them through this great deliverance. And um, the parallels to salvation through Jesus in this are so cool. So the angel of the Lord, you've heard BJ teach on that. When you see that wordage in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord going out with the armies of Israel and defending the people of God, fighting their battles and leading them in battle, that's the pre-incarnate Jesus, the presence of God with his people fighting for them. So you see here, the angel of the Lord with the people in deliverance. And Jude, who's a New Testament writer, he goes so far as to say that Jesus himself um, delivered Israel from Egypt. So here you see the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He 
He's disarming the Egyptians. The story says that he breaks their chariots and he throws them into this massive confusion. And his defeat of the Egyptians is so obvious that they know it. (laughs) They say, let's get out of here. The God of Israel is fighting for them. They know this, but they still continue to pursue. They're still back there. They're not dead yet. And even though they're disarmed, if anyone in this crossing party of Israel, God's people, looks back or doubts the deliverance of Yahweh and what he said, their enemy is going to strike terror into them. If they look back and doubt his deliverance, they'll still see their enemy there. Even though they're already defeated, they're still there to strike terror into them. There's so many parallels in this for us. It's basically the definition of the right now, not yet. You know, we've been delivered. We are in the kingdom of light. We've been delivered from captivity and slavery to the powers. They no longer have authority over us. We are in the kingdom of God. We're his children. We have this inheritance. You know all the greatest hits. We have all of those things, but we're still pursued by our enemies. The fulfillment hasn't come So don't be condemned because all of us go through it. But when we look back, when we doubt, when we have those moments of weakness, our enemies that are still pursuing will strike terror into us. So we've got to trust. We've got to trust what God has said. We've got to trust the hope that he's put within us that there is going to be a fulfillment. We've got the first installment and he lives inside of us, right? So we've got to remember that whenever we are seeing those moments where we're being pursued. So Jesus has disarmed our enemies, and he's made an open spectacle of them, right? The word says that. He's disarmed them, and he's made an open spectacle of them by triumphing over them in the cross. And as God delivers people from the kingdom of darkness, he is glorified, just like Yahweh was in this situation. People get delivered, they get saved, and God is glorified. The church is the manifestation of God's multifaceted wisdom. Ephesians says that. And that wisdom declares the defeat and the eventual annihilation of powers and principalities that are in rebellion to God and to exalted humanity. They know the name of Jesus and they know their defeat. Just the existence of the church, this group of people who would normally be divided on all these different lines, dwelling in unity in God's blessings through the Messiah, is the declaration that they have lost. That there is no hope for them, and that all is left for them is decline until eventually they're destroyed. We are that declaration. Another awesome element of this story of the Exodus is it mentions a couple times that Israel was redeemed throughout the watch of the night, that they crossed over throughout the watch of the night. And it was at daybreak, it says, that their enemy is entirely swallowed up by the waters, that Moses removes his staff and the waters come back to their place. And the word goes so far to say that not one Egyptian that was pursuing them survived. And that Israel stands there in the light of day and, and looks on the bodies of the Egyptians floating in the water. This is like such a fulfillment picture. They're walking through throughout the watch of the night. They're pursued by their enemies. And the pre-incarnate Jesus stands between them and their enemies and provides light for them to cross through. And as the sun dawns, as the full light of day comes, they see the total defeat of their enemies right before their eyes. Like, isn't that an incredible picture of fulfillment that we're waiting for? 
Like that is so encouraging that this story is a type and it's a pattern to point us forward to our hope and what we go through now. It's, it's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing. So in Exodus 15, 13, right here, this is after um, they've gone through the water and they've come out the other side and the Egyptians are dead. And this is Moses and Miriam, and they sing this song and they mention redemption. In your covenant love, you have led the people whom you have redeemed, guiding them to your holy dwelling place. And of course, most importantly, before they even cross over, the Passover lamb's blood is smeared on the doorposts as a sign. Remember, they smeared the blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death that was taking out all the firstborn in Egypt passed them over. They, um, they escaped to death because of the blood of the lamb. And the blood of the Passover lamb, of course, points forward to redemption through the blood of Jesus, who was the lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice that delivers from death. So there are a lot of other redemption stories in the word. Like I said, this is the theme that started here and continues on and on. So Israel, when they do not honor their covenant with God um, and they get into sin and iniquity, they go into exile. They are exiled from the land and they go back into captivity. They go back into slavery in all these different lands. And then you'll see in the prophets, it's foretold all these different stories of deliverance from these exile situations too. So God just continues to redeem his people. Those stories are told um, in the prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, lots of places. So the redemption story continues. The new exodus is redemption by the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness for sins. So those that come to Jesus in faith are freed from captivity to the powers, sin, and death. This exodus takes them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, freedom, life, forgiveness, and reconciliation to the Father. They will enter into a new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, and they will no longer be condemned by sin. And this is described perfectly in these verses here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We've got the redemption through the blood. We've got the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant family, the new covenant family has undergone the new exodus, and it just continues to spread. For more and more people, the family continues to be built up. That's the redemption story. That's the theme of redemption throughout the whole. There's so much more you could talk about. And as I studied this, I was totally blown away. I think Joe got sick of me being like, what about this? But if this is a type of salvation, I think we should allow this to shift our perspective. We should allow, us, allow ourselves to think more in these terms. 
So instead of when you're just talking with a person, when you're sharing your testimony, when you're sharing the truth of the gospel, when you're living your life as a Christian with your convictions and all of those things, don't see that as just like, mm, yeah, whatever, I'm just doing this. See yourself as Moses raising up your testimony, raising the truth and faith, like he raised that staff over the barriers that keep people from crossing over into promise. See yourself as doing that and believe that the Lord is going to act on that faith and he's going to part those barriers. He's going to part the waters for those people and your influence to cross through into promise, into freedom. Think about it as an epic thing because it is. It's not just you, just whatever. I mean, you're exalted in the heavenly realms. You're declaring the risen Lord. That's a pretty epic thing. The word says that there's a lot of celebrating in heaven over one sinner saved. And I'm sure that we have no idea what that looks like. This is our type. So we should think in terms of the epic because that's what it is. Let's move on to talking about wisdom. This is going to be here in verse 8. So he made wisdom and understanding abundant to us. It says all wisdom and understanding. So God in his wisdom, he brought order in chaos and creation. I love thinking about God this way and what he does. He brings order out of chaos. So there was darkness and he subdued it. He created order. And there was chaotic waters, and he created order. He raised up the land out of the water, and he created a place where humans could dwell and flourish and experience his blessing. And in the beginning, God shared. He shared his abundant wisdom and his understanding with humanity. They were told to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over creation. He says this to Adam and Eve to do that. So when he tells humans to subdue the earth, there's an implication here. And the implication is that order has to be maintained and that it has to be, um, that they're going to partner with God in the maintenance of order if they're going to go subdue creation. And his image-bearing humans, they share in his wisdom to bring order. I mean, you have to have wisdom. You have to have understanding if you're going to subdue creation. So they're sharing with God in this. And that, of course, it would have been wise to listen to God's command about not eating from the tree of knowledge. But humans chose to listen to their own wisdom because it's their fundamental sin is to seize their own wisdom, to forfeit God's wisdom for their own, to do things their way. So throughout the Old Testament, we'll find people gifted with God's wisdom. We'll find people living according to their own wisdom. And we'll often find people doing both at different times. You know, sometimes they listen to God and other times they just listen to themselves. So wherever you see people exercising the wisdom of God, you'll see them creating order like God did. You'll see them bringing justice like the Lord does. And you'll see them glorifying Yahweh whenever you see people operating in God's wisdom. Of course, Joseph is an excellent example of this. Um, he was given wisdom to rule the nations by God's spirit. Pharaoh elevates him to this position of authority, and when famine is coming, Joseph knows what to do. That's just one of his acts of wisdom. He knows how to collect the food, to store it up. 
He understands how to distribute it to the people. He takes a situation that could have been a total chaos, death situation, and he brings God's order through God's wisdom to that situation. And God is glorified through it. And um, the same thing with the Torah. When people are choosing God's wisdom and not their own, it shows, and he is glorified. Wisdom is found in obeying God's statutes. So when Israel obeys they extend that blessing to the nations, which they often fail at. But when they do obey, just like this says, I've taught you statutes and judgments. Keep and do them. This is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people. And when they hear these statutes, they're going to say, this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. God is going to get the glory when people trust in his wisdom. And of course, you can't talk about wisdom in the Old Testament without talking about Solomon the son of David. So Solomon knew when he became king that he was in trouble if he was going to try to rule by his own wisdom. He can't bring justice based on his own wisdom. There was no way he was going to do that. So he asked the Lord for the thing that he valued most highly, which was God's wisdom. And God granted it to him, and he was the smartest man in the world. So he was definitely glorifying God in that way. This next one is really interesting. So this says, the seed of David, which is Jesus. And it has this scripture from Proverbs. You're like, how in the world is that related to Jesus? It is, and it's really cool. How blessed is the one who finds wisdom and one who obtains discernment. When you find wisdom, you'll find that wisdom is like a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And those who take hold of wisdom, they're blessed. It's like the tree of life. It's blessing to them. So you have to go, where, guess where you have to go to talk about the tree of life? Back to the beginning, right? Are you sick of going back to the beginning yet? <laughs> it's important. So relating this to Jesus, humans in the Garden of Eden had access to the tree of life. Remember, it was at the center of the garden, the most sacred space. And the tree of life imparts to them God's own life, power, and presence. They could go and they could eat freely of it. And it represented the abundance of God being in his presence and having access to all of the goodness that is in God. It, it represented fellowship with him, so many different things. Instead, they eat from the forbidden tree and they're exiled from the garden. They're kicked out and they no longer have the ability to access the tree of life. They don't have the ability to come into the presence of God anymore. They're alienated from God and from the tree of life. So when Jesus comes to earth, he says that God's heavenly presence is arriving on earth through him. He talks about this in lots of terms. I know that you're all familiar with Jesus's parables. He uses all sorts of different descriptions that the people in that time would have understood to describe himself, to describe the kingdom of God, all sorts of things. Um, he often talks about this in terms of trees and plants. Uh, he does this in Matthew 13, where he says that a, the tiniest of seeds grows up to produce this huge tree that puts out its branches, and all the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. They come and experience the blessing of this enormous tree that came from this tiny little seed. He also references this when he talks about himself as the vine the vine that brings new life, 
the vine, that when we abide in the vine, we also produce fruit. So he talks about himself in that kind of plant tree term there. And so what ends up happening? We know that people kill Jesus. They basically kill the tree of life on a tree of death because he was crucified on the tree. And again, it looks like human beings in choosing their own wisdom and forfeiting the wisdom of God have destroyed the very tree of life. But remember, Jesus also talked about himself in terms of a kernel of wheat that has to fall to the ground and die if it's going to produce this giant tree that is going to bear much fruit for people to come and eat from. And he says, those that eat of him will have life and not die. Doesn't that sound so much like the garden, the tree of life? You go and you eat of it and you have eternal life. Jesus says, come and eat of me and you will not die, but you will have eternal life. That is just so cool. So Jesus, this restored tree of life, he's both the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you see the connection between Jesus being the tree of life and wisdom and all the things of God being inside of that. Not only that, but all things are summed up in the Messiah. It's in him that we have access to all things God, all those spiritual gifts. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So right now, and the right now, not yet, we see dimly because we're in the right now, not yet. We partake in the tree of life now. We partake in Jesus now. He's made all wisdom and understanding available to us in abundance in Messiah. And we also look forward to the fulfillment of all of that abundance. As I thought about this tree of life imagery and this theme that runs all the way through the Bible, I really wanted to read to you the portion of Revelation that talks about the ultimate picture of the tree of life and of Jesus because it's so encouraging for us as we're walking through those parted waters, being pursued by our enemies, we need to hear things like this. So this is Revelation 22. The angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the main street of the city. On either side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and yielding a fresh crop for each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be within the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night in the city, and they will have no need for light of lamp or of the sun. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. It's the ending of the best story. So two points today. Dwell on the thought of redemption. Think about your own redemption. Think about other people's redemption and what that means, the significance of that. And think about and meditate on how Jesus being in Messiah has made all wisdom and understanding abundant for you, for you right now. Think about eating from the tree of life right now and not the other tree. Think about that. Let's do a little prep for next Sunday so that we can hit the ground running. Next Sunday, we're going to move into verses 15 through 23. This is where Paul starts to pray. This transition is signified by these three words, which are transition words. For this reason, 
He's saying, because of everything I just told you in that worship song, now I'm going to pray this for this reason. I'm going to pray this. I'm just going to go ahead and read through this um, section here. And again, 15 through 23, guess what it is in Greek? It's all one sentence, all one long sentence. So they've kept it that way in your packet translations. For this reason, as I heard of y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which is toward all the holy ones, I have not stopped giving thanks, making remembrance on y'all's behalf in my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Messiah, the Father of glory, would give y'all a spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to know him, the eyes of y'all's heart having been illuminated, so that y'all would know what is the hope of his calling, what is the richness of the glory of his inheritance among the holy ones, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward y'all who trust in accordance with the working of the power of his might, which he worked in the Messiah, having raised him from the dead ones, having seated him at his right hand, seated him in the heavenly realm, above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the coming one. And he placed all things under his feet, and gave him headship over all things in the church." which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Let's do a little breakdown and overview of this. So first, Paul hears about their faith, and he hears about their faith and how it's demonstrated. It's demonstrated in the way they love each other. Um, Across all these boundary lines and things that would normally divide them, they still love each other, and that's an example of their faith. When he hears about this, he's overwhelmed with thankfulness. He gives thanks for them, that they're bearing the fruit of the kingdom in the world. He gives thanks. And then he goes on and he prays for them to have more, because there's always more. So he's going to pray for them to have more. He prays that they would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We've talked about this word revelation. This is our word apocalypse. He's praying for them to have the apocalypse, the recognition that there's a bond between heaven and earth, that there's more to this than we just see with our physical eyes. He's praying for them to realize, to capture that Jesus has risen and he reigns over both realms, over heaven and earth from his exalted position in the heavenly realm. He's praying for them to grasp that so they can realize what that means for them as believers. He prays uh, that they would have the eyes of their hearts illuminated so that they would know him. There's some specific things he goes into here. He wants them to know the hope of their calling. He wants them to know the hope of the fulfillment that they wait for, the guarantee that lives inside them. He wants them to hold on to the hope of how glorious the fulfillment of that is going to be. He wants them to know the glory of the inheritance and the holy ones, the glory in God's people here on earth set aside for him, his treasured possession, these people that glorify him, that declare his lordship. He wants you to understand that. And he wants you to grasp this power, this surpassing power that Yahweh has toward those who believe. And then he goes into this exposition on what that power is. He begins to just break that down and elaborate on the power. The important thing is it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead ones and exalted him. 
It's the same power that worked in Messiah to have victory over every other power, not only now, but in the age to come for all time. Just like when Jesus died, remembered, he said, it is finished. He wants you to know that power, the same power that placed all things under his feet and gave him headship over the church, the church, which is the focal point where his lordship is acknowledged and manifested. We're the focal point in the earth that says Jesus is Lord over everything. He is Lord over everything, but we're the declarers of that. That's all focused here. We acknowledge that as real. That's our role in the world. So he wants you to understand that. Um, This is manifested in the church by the fact that we worship the risen Jesus. Um, and, uh, and in the way that we live our lives, because Jesus has risen. So next week, we're going to focus on this idea, again, of revelation and apocalypse, because it's central to the entire letter to the Ephesians. We're going to talk about it. We've talked about it in terms of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Next week, we'll talk about it in terms that are more time-oriented, this age and the age to come. Paul believed that God's kingdom arrived or was inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but that it also still has a future consummation or fulfillment that is still to come. So we have this age and the age of fulfillment that is to come, but it's already been inaugurated. It's overlapping, just like the two realms. So we'll go into that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. You are so awesome in your power and your majesty and that you are so good to us. The fact that you share with us, that you bless us, that you love us so much, Lord. Our natural inclination should be just to lay our lives down for you. I mean, what else can we possibly do? There's no thank you big enough. So we just give you all of it. You can just have us. We'll be your sacrifice here on earth. Help us to live that way, Lord, to be that declaration that you have risen, that you are exalted, and that you reign over heaven and earth, that it is finished. This age and the age to come, that there is no power or name that is higher than you, Lord. Help us to be that declaration and the manifestation of that here on earth every day of our lives, Lord. Help us, help us, help us. Increase the revelation inside of us, Lord. Deepen it. Help us to see it day by day, Lord. We thank you for all that you're doing and all that you've done and all that is to come, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.